The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Ephesians 4, 1 through 16 on page 977. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift, Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower, lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who has also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip Equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes." Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. Welcome again, everyone. It's uh, great to be with you. Excited to look at this passage with you. Uh, But let's pray first. Again, ask for God's help. Ask that God would help me teach it clearly. Uh, Father, we do love you. We're so happy to uh, be in your presence in the name of your son and to hear from your word. Lord, we pray your Holy Spirit would just um, give us understanding deep within our minds and hearts and that your word would have its way with us. Um, Lord, your word always creates. It always creates. And so we pray you would create Um, in us. Create new children, Lord, as people come to believe in Christ, and then continue to recreate we who are your children uh, to make us more like Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So uh, last week, next couple weeks, we're working through the four aspects of our mission here at Fountain of Life. Uh, And just as a, a reminder, Our mission statement, obviously, is not intended to be comprehensive in that it covers everything important that a Christian could do or be a part of. No, there's there's infinite variety to that, right? Rather, our mission is fundamental in the sense that there are some things we want to happen in everyone who participates in this church. Um, Despite your situation, your passions, your responsibilities, this is what we want to occur in everyone. This is what we want to emphasize, And so our mission reads like this, grounded in the gospel, we gather to grow in the gospel and scatter to spread the gospel for the glory of God. Say that one more time. Grounded in the gospel, we gather to grow in the gospel and scatter to spread the gospel for the glory of God. So last week, if you were with us, you know, we we dug into what it means to be grounded in the gospel. And again, that's most important if you missed it. Uh, you can go on to our website, listen to that sermon. I'll try to give just a brief recap, because again, it's most important, it's foundational. First of all, what is the gospel? The gospel is the good news of Jesus, who he is and what he has done. And this good news of Jesus is of first importance. We saw that last week. There are many things that are important. This is most important. This is the hub that holds the wheel together. This is the cornerstone of the building. And the gospel begins with this, Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, took on human flesh. He lived a perfect life, died for our sins on a cross, and rose from the dead in victory. That's the good news. It's what's been accomplished 
by Jesus. And so our response is to put our faith in him, to trust him, to hold fast to him. And as we do so, we saw, we receive the lavish grace of God. This grace changes your standing instantly. What I mean is before Christ, you're an enemy of God, you are under the condemnation of God, and then at one moment, with perfection, when you trusted Christ, you were declared righteous, with a righteousness not your own, a righteousness from Jesus himself. So you're made right with God, you're forgiven of all your sins. There's nothing you can do to atone for them, to make it right. No, it's through Christ alone as you trust yourself to him, complete forgiveness and you're adopted as a child of God. That is instantaneous, it is complete, it is eternal, it is by grace alone, God's undeserved love, through faith alone. You trust him, it's not your works, in Christ alone. We love that. That's the gospel. It changes your standing, your identity. It also changes your lifestyle. Gradually, but powerfully, those who believe the gospel and have that fundamental change happen to them will be changed practically that you would grow to love the glory of your Father and live for him according to his word. That's that lavish grace, changed our standing, changed our lifestyle. So we want you to be grounded in the gospel, feet planted right there on Christ. Well, say you're following along on that. Okay, what's next? What's next? We want you to gather to grow in that same gospel. We gather to grow in the gospel. We're not leaving behind the gospel. No, we're going deeper into the gospel, and we're doing that as we gather to grow in the gospel. So as I say that, I know, okay, guys, we want you to gather to grow in the gospel. As we say that, I know our cultural moment would have serious questions about this entire idea. And I'm specifically thinking about the idea of gathering to grow. You know, a lot of people might think, well, do I really need to grow? And could church honestly offer, or, you know, do I really need to grow? Because people seem to think that church is about helping you be a good person. You know, don't raise your hand, but is that your idea of church? It, it helps you be a good person. And then, ironically, most people believe they've attained that already. You're generally a good person. And so if church is about helping you be a good person and you're already a good person, well, what, what just happened to church? It's irrelevant. And that's, that's a huge movement in our society right now. This is irrelevant. I'm already a good person. Church just helps you be a good person. So do I really need to, do I need, really, really need to grow? Second, can church, if say I needed to grow, can church really be the people that help me grow? That's an important question. Um, you know, we could say, hey, I've met some Christians, and I'm already a nicer person than they are. Anyone? Okay. Uh, that could be totally true. It could be absolutely true. And so you might think, well, how would a church full of hypocrites, supposedly, or at least in some way, uh, okay, how could, that, how could that group help me grow? Good question. So do I really need to grow? Can church really help me grow? And then three, this is a big one in our day, do I really need to gather? Do we really need to gather with other Christians? You know, on, on one hand, anybody feel busy? Could you use that couple of hours on Sunday morning to do something else? On the other hand, more and more, you want to give your kids opportunities right? When do sports happen? When do the activities happen? Sunday morning. Do we really need to gather to grow? Especially in our day, right? Hey, we have podcasts. We have YouTube. We have online church, headphone church, Facebook church. Please don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying don't listen to podcasts. I'm not saying there couldn't be a time when you might wanna watch something on home. I'm not saying that in itself is evil, but I'm saying, I mean, can't you feel where this could go with me? If you could just do a, if you could just do podcasts or be online, you, you can tell me, where does that go in regard to gathering? I, I don't need to gather anymore. I mean, think of the convenience of online church. You can listen to better preachers. 
You could could listen to the best in the world all day long whenever you wanted. Moreover, when you didn't like what they were saying, you could just skip it, you know? Moreover, if they went too long, and some of you might wish you had this button right now. If they go too long, you can listen to it at like double speed, right? You ever do that with the podcast? Let's get this thing over with, okay? And best of all, I'm tongue-in-cheek here. The best part of online church is you don't have to deal with those annoying things called other people. You don't have to deal with other people. Because let's be honest, real people can be really awkward, really inconvenient, and sometimes really offensive. And they, other people get in the way, and am I saying this too strongly? Other people get in the way of our self-oriented comfort. Other people get in the way of our self-oriented comfort. We live in a culture, folks, where people are actually having conversations about marrying robots. That sounds so ridiculous. It is so ridiculous. But that is actually a conversation that is happening out there. And one reason you'd want to do that is because you don't have the inconvenience of another person who might disagree with you or be an inconvenience to you. So all these things say, do we really need to gather to grow? Really? Yeah, really. Really. And the Bible is so clear on this. Part of the name church, the roots of some of these words are the called out ones who gather together. That's what we do. And so... Uh, I want to show you this morning that to be grounded in the gospel as you should, you've got to gather with God's people to grow in the gospel. Moreover, I think it's true that if you are truly grounded in the gospel, you will be deeply committed to gathering with God's people to grow in the gospel despite any difficulty. It will be irresistible. We gather to grow in the gospel. So this morning, I want to convince you this is a biblical motivation. Um, I want to see a little bit of what it looks like. And hopefully, the Holy Spirit will inspire us to pursue it. To do that, we're going to look at this section from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Uh, I want to encourage you to read this letter again. Read it for the first time if you haven't. Um, If you ever wanted to read something epic, Ephesians is epic, right? It starts with uh, the eternal plan of God for his people before he even made the world. So it's just on this huge scope. You know, nations rise and fall, and Ephesians doesn't blink. Uh, The world can look like it's falling apart. Ephesians is unhindered. It's a celebration of the eternal grace of God, the triune God for his people. So I want to give just a little bit of background from this book that will build up to our passage this morning, okay? Chapter 1, you'd be told of God's intentions for us from before he created the world, his plan for his people in the gospel. Chapter 2, all Christians remember their story, where that story is going. Remember, we were dead in our trespasses. Uh, Dead, not in the sense we're corpses, but dead in the sense that our our desires were evil and inclined against God. We're, We're not good people by his standards. But God loved us. Look what Ephesians 2, 5 to 8 says. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You see that unity we have in Christ? It's amazing, that unity with Christ. And look at God's goal now in verse 7. So that in the coming ages, he might show, what does he want to show you? For ages, the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. God wants to thrill us forever and ever and ever with his kindness for us in Christ. 4, verse 8, by what? By grace you have been saved. Through faith. That's just an incredible picture of being grounded in the gospel. Incredible. So by the end of chapter two, uh, we see the work of salvation so profound it takes 
God's people and makes them one. Even Jew and Greek are brought together to be one through the blood of Christ. Then chapter 3 takes us to the highest of places. If you read the end of chapter 3, you, you see that incredible prayer where Paul wants to be filled with, filled with the love of Christ. Remember, it goes deeper and higher and wider than we can ever imagine. We're so loved by Christ together. But it's, it's this, middle, uh, this middle passage in Ephesians 3 I want you to see right before we get to chapter 4. Look what Paul says in Ephesians 3, 8 to 10. To me, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. You can have Christ. Verse 9, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that, and what are the next three words? Through the church. Through the church. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. Do you see, do you see something here? God has had this plan for ages and ages. It was a mystery hidden for so long, but now in Christ and his people, it's being revealed it's this wisdom of how God saves sinful people and brings them to himself as his children through Christ. And so now there's a display of his wisdom. And this was God's eternal plan to display his wisdom. His eternal plan to display his wisdom. Where is it displayed? Through the church. I'm not sure what you see as being the big deal today. Right? You can read the news and be depressed, overwhelmed. Maybe in your life you've got things that are, your urgent list is too long. There's all these big, big things. I'm not sure what you see as being the biggest deal today. God knows all of that stuff, but we just saw what God thinks of as the big deal. This is God's big deal. And what is it? It's what he's doing in the church. That's the big deal. That's the big deal. So all that, lead, all that epic stuff of one to three, God's salvation for us, eternity past to right now, it's planned for the future, all that epic stuff leads up to chapter four. And chapter 4 is where Paul finally wants believers to start working these things out practically in day-to-day -day life. So it really is the rubber meets the road in Ephesians 4. We hear all these great things God has done from 1 to 3. Then in 4, it's like, okay, now this is what you do with this. This is what you do with this. So we're going to look at Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 16. It's so rich. I'm just going to tell you now, I can only point out highlights, but... We're going to see five reasons together, you ready, that we gather to grow in the gospel. Five reasons. So here they are. Number one, gathering to grow in the gospel is the first and primary application of the gospel. That's number one. Number two, gathering to grow puts skin on the gospel. We're going to see that. Number three. Gathering to grow displays what we have in the gospel. Number four, by gathering to grow, we share in some of the victory of the gospel. Five, it's by gathering to grow that we, that we achieve God's goal for us in the gospel. So I'll run that through one more time if you're taking notes. Number one, it's the primary application of the gospel. Number two, it puts skin on the gospel. Number three, it displays what we have in the gospel. Number four, it's part of how we share in the victory of the gospel. And number five, it's how we achieve God's goal for us in the gospel. All that is why we gather to grow, okay? Here we go. Verse, Ephesians 4, verse 1. Uh, if, you're looking, if you're following along in your Bibles, I'd encourage you to do that. Again, page 977. Ephesians 4, verse 1, Paul says, I, and then if anybody's there, what's the second word in Ephesians 1, verse 1? Therefore. Okay, that's such a huge word. Therefore. So, so Paul is saying here, 
because of everything I showed you in 1 to 3, chapter 4. I, therefore, it all leads up to this. If you believe 1 to 3, you'll do number 4. And by the way, I just, I just got to pause here for a second. This is the logic of the Christian life. So have you heard this before? Um, for, for the Christian religion, the, the logic of the Christian life, it's the indicative that enables the imperative. Now, are any of you looking at me like, okay? Indicative enables the imperative. Well, let me unpack this. Indicative, that's, that's a grammar word, language, right? And you're like, really? You're giving me grammar? Yes, okay? The Bible is a book, right? The indicative expresses a simple statement of fact. It's already been done. You don't add to it. You can't mess with it. It is. It fundamentally is. It's not as a result of your works or your deserving. And the beauty of this is, it's, this is what makes it good news. Look what God has done in Christ. Would you like it? And then faith says, yes, I would. And you believe it, and it's yours. God has done it. The imperative, do you know what imperative means? Well, now it's an exhortation or a command. Hey, get your work on. Let's get going. Do these things. Do you see, in every other religion, it's imperative first. Do these things, and you'll be good enough. Do these things, and you'll make it. Do these things, and you'll get in. And Christianity says that is absolutely hopeless because you cannot do them good enough. You cannot save yourself. So Christianity totally flips that and says, Jesus has done it. He's done it for you. So believe that and now obey not so that God will love you. Obey because you are already more loved than you can imagine. Obey not so that you can get your sins forgiven. No, obey because you're already forgiven. Obey not because one day you can measure, make, make it up and get perfect on your own. No, God has made you righteous in Christ. Obey because you have it. Live this out because you are children, because you are loved. And that's what Paul is saying here. One to three, it's been done for you. Because you're loved, now do this. Because you're forgiven, now do this. That's so important. That's a lot of what we mean by grounded in the gospel. You got to start there. Trust Christ. Okay. Now, if you believe that, therefore, Paul says, I want you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. So let's live in a way that fits with what God has done for us. Let's live in a way that fits what God has done for us, that shows what God has done for us. Let's show that we're saved in how we live. And what's the big two words? in verse two, where this is all pointing. In Ephesians one to three, Paul has basically said, through Christ, God has adopted you and brought you into his family. And Ephesians four says, live like it. Friends, it's therefore one another. Therefore, one another. What God has done for you in Christ, therefore, how you live at church. Romans works like this as well. Romans 1 to 11, look what God has done. Romans 12, therefore, go ahead and read it. Be transformed. Church, church, the primary application of you trusting Christ is shown in your relationships at a local church. The primary implication that you are grounded in the gospel is that you gather to live out the gospel with a local church. Therefore, one another. That's point one. Point two. So point one, we gather to grow because it's the, it's the primary implication, primary application that we believe the gospel of Christ. Point two, it puts skin on the gospel. So in Ephesians 4, at the beginning of the chapter, Paul is arguing for Christians to maintain the unity they have in the Holy Spirit. I'll just look again, Ephesians 4, 1 to 3. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, 
with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Think about that word, maintain. Does Paul say you guys need to create unity? As if it's something we make. No, he says you need to maintain unity. What does that imply? It's already there. You already have it. And you see that more in this phrase, the unity of the Spirit. Whose unity is it? It's the Holy Spirit's unity that he gives the church as he unites God's people to God's Son. There's already a unity there that is ours through Christ. But Paul says, you need to maintain it. You need to maintain it. It's this idea of guarding it or taking care of it or keeping it. And friends, don't we see this in church a lot? Can't we trample on the unity that's there? Can't we drag that unity through the mud? Paul says, I want you to maintain it. And how do we do that? How do we maintain this unity we have in the spirit? Verses one to three show us it's all about Christ-like character in our relationships. It's Christ-like character in our relationships. You know, Jesus said, didn't he, in the gospel of John, love one another as I have loved you. Love one another as I have loved you. In fact, he says, this is how the whole world's gonna know you're mine. It's how you love one another. That's so profound. Do you realize the extent to which you want the world to know that Jesus is real? That's fitting to the extent to which you want to love one another? That's huge. And you know, whenever, uh, whenever you talk or speak about love or preach about love, I've never, right, sometimes you, you talk about controversial things and people, they, you know, there's, there's an email or a question or a t- what's going on here? But never when I'm like, love, you know, love one another, no one's ever like, no. <laughs> I've, I've never seen an anti-love march. You know, we, let, we hate love, all forms of love we're against. Nobody ever says that. It's, it's like when people say they love community. Isn't it easy to love the idea of love more than you actually love love? To love the idea of community more than you actually love community? Because a way in our cultural moment, a way we view love, love is something like this. Finally, someone values me as much as I deserve to be valued. Right? Yeah? Finally, someone values me as much as I deserve to be valued. That's your, that's your view of love. And mine too, probably. It comes automatically. That's not. That's not Christian love. Christian love is valuing others as Christ has undeservedly, in the words, you didn't deserve it, valued you. It's loving others with the love of Jesus for you. Which is why you have to be grounded in the gospel to do it. (laughs) You have to be so thrilled with Jesus' love for you that that's the source of your love for one another. Because look at the character qualities of the love we are supposed to have. This will crush you, okay? I don't like preaching on this because it crushes me. This will crush you. Let's, let's love one another. Okay, that's great. You want to walk in a manner worthy of your calling? What does Paul say? With all humility. Humility. It's amazing. This word was actually never used in the ancient Greek world in a context of approval or admiration. It was seen as a, kind of a disgusting weakness. You know, the worldview there is you need to establish yourself. And humility says, let's look to the interests of others and put our, lay ourselves down for that. So it was, it was seen as despised. But then who, who blew all that up fundamentally? Jesus, the most humble person you will ever see, is Jesus of Nazareth. And look what Paul wrote about Jesus in Philippians 2. Philippians 2, 3 to 8. I'll just read this for you. Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. 
We can just pause there. How many of you are like, it's over for me already? It's, it's over. That's why we need to be grounded in the gospel, right? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each look not to only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Why would we do this? It's too hard. It's painful. Look at verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, second person of the Trinity, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The reason you can be right with God, saved from your sins, and brought near as a child of God is because Jesus was humble. And if you treasure that, what will you want to be in your relationships with one another? Humble. And that puts skin on the gospel. Now I can see a little bit of Christ-like humility in how you treat one another. Paul says, humility, gentleness, with all gentleness. Gentleness is strength under control in order to treat others well. It's strength under control. You could say it. You were stronger. You could muscle in, but you're going to control yourself for the benefit of others. Gentleness. Look at Jesus again. Look at Jesus. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you. This is beautiful, isn't it? I'll give you rest. How is it that Jesus can give you rest? Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am, what does he say? Gentle. And lowly in heart. It's one of the few places Jesus talks about his own heart towards his people. And his defining factor towards his people is that he's gentle. He's going to be kind to you and soft with you. You can have rest in him because of who he is towards you. If you treasure that, if you're grounded in the gospel, guess what you will want to be towards other people, even when it's difficult? Gentle. And as you do so... You put skin on the gospel. We see it. Keep going. With, Paul says, with patience. Humble, gentle, with patience. The idea is long-suffering towards aggravating people. <laughs> oh. You know, uh, I like it when people, it's always wonderful when new folks come to our church. And uh, if they stay, they, you always just like it a little bit. You wouldn't come back. But, but then this will happen, right? Because we have actual people here in our church, including me. We will hurt one another. We will disappoint one another. We, we, we will. We will. We will. And so many people think, I got hurt at church. I'm done. Okay? Now, there are certain things at certain churches. You should leave those churches. That's not the conversation I'm having right now. But part of the call of the gospel, to, be, to gather and grow in the gospel, is to bear with one another, to be long-suffering with one another, to endure awkwardness and offense over and over and over again, to keep forgiving. Why would you do that? That is so painful. It is not easy. Just go home and listen to an online sermon. It's so much easier. Why would you do that? Has Jesus had to be long-suffering with you? Have you done things to deny him, offend him, forget him, overlook him? Does he not bear with you? Does he not forgive you again and again and again? If you're grounded in the gospel, oh, he's long-suffering with me. Guess what you will want to show others? patient long-suffering. It puts skin on the gospel. Bear with one another in love. It's the same idea. You're just not going to give up when people are difficult. You offer an enduring love that's undeserved because Jesus does it with us. I hope you, I hope you see it, right? 
So the unity of the, main, of the Spirit we have is maintained with Christ-like character in relationships with one another. As we ground it in the gospel, we put skin on the gospel and how we live with one another. And this is so important. I mean, first of all, it drives us back to the gospel again, doesn't it? Because already I'm thinking, I didn't do that. That's hard for me. I'm prideful. I'm not always gentle. I'm not long-suffering. It's hard for me to forgive, and now I'm going back. Please forgive me, Lord, right? I'm going back to the gospel, and I'm remembering his love for me, and that shoots us out to put skin on the gospel. So, friends, let's just one application. Get rid of your grudges. Get rid of your grudges. I want you to ask the Lord to show you where they are. It's just like the residue of people hurting us, right? Grudges. And what is a grudge? Boy, it's hard to melt that down, but it's something. A little bit of self-righteousness, you are so obviously right. A little bit of self-pity, how could they do that to me? A grain of truth, they were probably wrong. But you just keep that thing in your pocket. It's growing a little bit. You kind of have a love-hate relationship with thinking about it. Mm, they just don't, mm, they don't deserve. And there's distance. And when you hang on to a grudge in that way, you deny the gospel. You deny it. Because our hope is built on the reality that Jesus carries no grudges towards us. Gathering to grow puts skin on the gospel. It also displays what we have in the gospel. Look at verses four to five. This is where our unity comes from. We could talk a lot about the importance of unity and how you know when you have unity. We're gonna, we're gonna skip that for now. I just want you to see how gathering to grow displays what we have in the gospel. Look at verses four to five. There's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, who's over all and through all and in all. What's a word that stuck out to you from that verse? One. All. And so we see what we have in our salvation. One triune God has one plan to bring his one people to himself. It's this unity we have in this salvation from our triune God. There's one Father. Chapter 1 in Ephesians, he ordains our salvation. There's one Lord, chapter 1, chapter 2 of Ephesians. Jesus Christ accomplished our salvation through his life, his death, his resurrection. So we have one faith regarding who he is and what he's done. There's one true gospel. We have one baptism. It's a sign and a seal of our belonging to him. It means our old life of rebellion is dead. We have new life of love for the Lord. There's one hope. He's coming back. There's one spirit. The Holy Spirit applies our salvation. Father, Son, and Spirit, one God in three persons, perfectly united in saving us. And we see that the Spirit unites us to Jesus Christ to the point where we are together his body. And so the local church is an expression it's not about being a good person. You could muster some of that up yourself. The participation in the local church is an expression of being the body of Christ by the power of the Spirit. Wow. So it shows what we have as we gather together in unity in the name of Jesus. We have salvation from the one God. He's brought us near so we can display that. And now if you think of the illustration of the body, is there anything more gross than a part of the body cut off from the body? You know, pack it up in some ice, put it in the freezer, get it on soon, right? Get it on soon. It's not going to go well. If you're a Christian, you are a part of the body of Christ. And that is only, that can only be lived out in participation with a local church. And so we gather to grow because we're a part of Christ's body. And just like a part of the body cut off and thrown on the side of the road, it's grotesque. It's not going to work. It won't last. So a Christian cut off from participation in a faithful local church is in deep trouble. So we gather to grow to display 
what we have, the salvation from our unified triune God. All right, just to back it up, Paul's talking about putting Christianity into practice. Uh, Chapters 1 to 3, we're all about God's grace for us in Christ, what he's done for us. We receive it by faith alone. Chapter 4, trying to put it into practice. So it starts with, therefore, one another. So that means we gather to grow. Why? Part 1, it's a primary application of our faith in Christ. It's a primary implication, one another. Number two, we gather to grow in this way because it puts skin on the gospel. We see the gospel for us as we live it out together. Number three, it displays what we have in the gospel. The one triune God has brought us to himself to be the body of Christ. Now, number four, it's part of how we share in the victory of the gospel. This is part of the difficult part of this text, verses seven to 10. Did you notice it? You've got Christ ascending, leading captives on high, giving gifts to men. He ascended, he descended. Do you remember that part? And maybe you're thinking, I don't know what that means. In verses 7 to 10, Paul is referring to Psalm 68. In Psalm 68, that's about God's victory as king and his care for his people. So like a victorious king of old in this psalm, God wins the victory and he shares the spoils of his victory with his people. So the whole idea is he wins, our God is undefeated, he wins, and he shares his victory with his people. And so Paul, as he always does, he shows how Christ fulfills this section of the Old Testament. And so so who is the divine king who has won the victory? Well, it's Jesus. And, and, and as Paul thinks about the de. How, how the king descended, well, that's how Jesus became flesh. He came among us to die for our sins. And how he ascended, well, he rose from the dead and he reigns now at the right hand of the Father. And he's a victorious king and he's giving the spoils of his victory to his people. That sounds exciting. And how many of you are now thinking, well, uh, how does that happen? You know, should I be looking for this in the mail? Spoils of victory to his people from his Uh, in his salvation. Well, you see it, I think, in verse 7. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So commentators think, I think it's right. Paul is thinking of the idea of spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts that Jesus gives by the Holy Spirit to each one of his people. Now, what is a spiritual gift? There are many lists, and some are broad, and some are more detailed. I'm not going to give you a comprehensive list right now. I don't think we even can. But basically, a spiritual gift is um, an aspect of God's grace that God gives to each one of his people so that you can serve the body of Christ in a way that's unique to you. You have a gift that only you have, that God has given you to serve the body. Think about how each part of your body serves you somehow. Aren't you glad they're there? Even recently we've discovered you want to keep your appendix if you can, right? Um, Aren't you glad the parts of your body are there to carry out their function? In in that way, each, each one of us, has been given a gift from God to uniquely serve the body. Uh, 1 Peter 4 makes this really clear. Look at 1 Peter 4, 10 to 11. As each has received a gift, just pause right there. I just wanna, wanna hammer this in. If you're a Christian, you've put your faith in Christ, guess what Jesus has given you? A gift. I wonder what it is. We could talk about that. But now the second thing, what do you do with your gift? As each has received a gift, use it to what? Serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So here's this picture of unity and diversity. God gives grace through Christ to his people, but it shows itself in such a variety of ways. We have different strengths and weaknesses, and we need one another, and God gives these gifts of grace but they don't primarily exist to be seen by others or so that others can thank you for them. What's your gift for? 
serve. Serve one another. Whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. As a gift to his church, God gives us us with the gifts that we have so that we can serve. You are Christ's gift to his church. A spoil of war that he has won in his life, death, and resurrection. Wow. Uh, Moreover, the gifts continue uh, in these roles. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but there's this list uh, there's apostles and teacher, or uh, uh, sorry, apostles and prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And there's some room for disagreement on how these roles work. I'll just give you the quickest summary of mine. Uh, I think apostles and prophets are probably the same people, eyewitnesses of Christ who had authority from Christ to proclaim him in that way. They were prophets. They spoke of the word of God. They're witnesses in the New Testament. That was one role, and it's Christ's gift to his church. Aren't you glad we have the Bible? The New Testament is a spoil of Christ's victory, given as a gift to his church. Moreover, there's evangelists. You read your New Testament. Timothy was probably an example of evangelists. They would, they would travel around broadly, build up the church, sharing the gospel, teaching the gospel. Then there's pastors and teachers. These are probably the same role as well. These are people who shepherd the church primarily through preaching and teaching. But just for right now, what do do each one of these roles do? What do apostles and prophets do? What do evangelists do? What What do pastors and teachers do? They all talk about Jesus. Do you see that? They are all teaching roles. They're all teaching roles. And so here's what the text wants us to see. Faithful, Christ centered teachers of the Bible are gifts to the church from the victorious Jesus Christ. And I hope you believe me when I say I'm not tooting my own horn here. I'm only talking about this because this is what the text is saying. And it really has nothing to do with me. I have many, many flaws. Um, But listen, Uh, look at what Paul says to Timothy, 1 Timothy 4.16. Here Paul is writing to uh, someone he's mentored, a pastor, a teacher, evangelist. First Timothy 4.16. Paul says to Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. So Timothy, you better make sure your life is legit. Are you following Jesus? Don't be a hypocrite. And he says, Timothy, keep your watch on yourself and on what? What you're teaching. You be careful that you're teaching the scriptures well, that you're teaching Christ from the scriptures. You keep a close watch. But now look at this next sentence. It both thrills me and terrifies me. Persist in this. Persist in what? Keeping a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. For by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. I don't want, what? All right, well, let's parse this apart. There's a way no teacher saves anybody. Who who saves? Jesus saves, okay? Jesus saves, period, stop, right? He saves, put your faith in him. And yet a part of your salvation is being sanctified and growing in the gospel. It's a part of your salvation. It's an essential part of your salvation. It's living out the results of your trust in Christ. So it's it's trusting Christ and living out of that. And the Bible says for that to happen in you, You need faithful Bible preachers. And then Ephesians says, praise God in his victory, Jesus gives them to his church. Aren't you thankful? I'm thankful for so many faithful Bible teachers that show us Jesus there. I am deeply, I I, I owe so much to so many Faithful Bible teachers, both on a macro level and a micro level. Praise God. Maybe now you're thinking, how does this relate to what we're talking about? Part of why we gather to grow is because God thinks 
you need people to teach you the Bible. He does not think it's cool just for you to be you in the Bible in the corner. Do I want you to read your Bible in the corner? Yes. Would we love to have all of us grow and grow and grow in interpreting the Bible and being theological wizards? Yes. And God has made it to where you don't, it's not Lone Ranger Christians. It's not just me in the Bible. That, that makes trouble. God gives faithful teachers. The point of this text is part of why, what? Part of why we gather to grow is because that's how we enjoy the spoils of Christ's victory. And what is he giving in his victory? He's giving you to the church and your spiritual gifts, and he's giving people like me, people like many of you in various ways who teach the Bible faithfully. And that's part of why we gather to grow, right? Last one. We gather to grow because this is how we reach God's goal for maturity in Christ together. So we're looking now towards the end of the passage. This is our last point. After Paul talks about his gifts, uh, Jesus' gifts to the church, uh, in verse 11, he says, the main goal of these teachers is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So let's just pause right there. Who are those people? And many of you would like to think, well, you know, if I ask you, are you a saint? Some of you are like, no. Well, let's just ask, how do you define that? How do you define saint? The Protestant and I think biblical New Testament way to define saint is this. Those who trust Jesus. Saint means holy one, called out with a special calling. If you've trusted Christ, that's you. You are the ones Paul is talking about right here. That teachers equip the saints in their teaching of Jesus Christ for the work of ministry. Who's doing ministry in this passage? You are. The saints. And what is your ministry in the end of verse 12? Equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Do you hear God's word to you? If you belong to Jesus, God has called you to in some way somehow give yourself to build up your local church. This is God's call. You know, there's this quip, have you heard it? Uh, they love Jesus, but not the church. There's actually a book with that title. I haven't even read it, but I'm just talking about the title. They love Jesus, but not the church. And I guess we can get the idea, right? You get the idea Jesus is, he's wonderful, uh, but the church, hey, they're, they're painful sometimes, hypocritical sometimes. And we'd all have to admit, yeah, that's true sometimes. That, that is certainly true. But that phrase, they love Jesus, but not the church, does that put a rock in your shoe? You know what this text says? They love Jesus, but not the church. I think, this te- I think Paul would say, I'm not sure they love Jesus. When you hear Jesus' words, uh, love one another as I have loved you. This is how the world will know you're mine. Love one another as I have loved you. And then I think, I think if Jesus heard the phrase, they love Jesus but not the church, I think he might say, no, they don't. No, they don't. Jesus' call to the church is to love the church and to build one another up with the goal of maturity. You see that in verses 13 to 14. This is God's goal for us together, not just for me as an individual or you as an individual, but God's goal for us together is that we would attain to the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. There's, there's Ephesians being epic again. What? It sounds too big for us. And in a way it is, but that's God's goal for us he would mature us together as a body in Christ. And so if I was defining maturity, I would say it's a deep fellowship with and conformity to Christ together. Fellowship with, you know him, you know him, you love him. Fellowship with Christ, conformity to Christ. We look like him in what we love and how we live together. That's the goal, together. It's maturity. Look at the problem we faced. 
Immaturity, verse 14. It's so easy for church to be tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Every wind of what? Doctrine. What is doctrine? It's teachings. Do you see the difference? Right teaching of truth. Jesus from the Bible takes you to maturity. And the other alternative is some false gospels, some false hopes, some distractions. You ever find yourself distracted, your heart distracted? There's some news, there's some thought that becomes more urgent to you than who Jesus is or what he's done. And you're, and you're wavering there. You're wavering there. And Paul calls that, that's kind of a picture of immaturity. Let's come back. Let's build one another up to be grounded in the gospel and grow together in maturity. And that's your ministry to you. You build one another up. And the, and the main method for this, did you see it? Speaking the truth in love. Look at verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love. We are to grow in every way. We gather to what? Grow. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow in every way into him, Jesus, who is the head, as we build up one another. So let's think about that just for a moment. Truth in love. What is truth? Well, it's reality, right? It's the way things are, but specifically here, the core reality of who Jesus is, according to his word. What his word says. Jesus in his word, truth. Speak the truth in what? Love. How would you define love? Something like a humble, genuine desire for the best for your neighbor. Right? A self-giving desire for the best of your neighbor. Speak the truth in love. Let's go ahead and play on this illustration of the body. You know, if you think of truth being like the skeleton, love being like the flesh, how does truth only look to you? This is the way truth only people feel to me. It's like a walking skeleton, very prickly. And a hug might impale you to death. Some of you tend to be more truthy people. I do too sometimes. Can you, can you, where, where are you on the, on the balance here? Some of us tend to be more truthy people. And when we're like, hey, truth, you know, prickly, ah, on the other hand, a love-only person, imagine flesh with no skeleton. You know, it's this gooey, quivering mass of accepting anything. I just want to love you. But what about this? Uh, love, you know? Love. And, and you can't hug that either because it melts like jello. You know, you just... Some of you tend to be more lovey people. And maybe different, which one, ask yourself, which one do I tend to be? Am I more truthy, a little more prickly? Am I more lovey, a little, little cuddly? Hey, praise God for our, our differences. But what do we want to grow to in maturity? Speak the truth in love. That's a hug that will hold. It's a hold that will hang on because you've got the reality of Christ and who he is and what he said in the grace of Christ and his love for us. Speak the truth in love. So friends, I hope you are convinced. This is the second part of our mission. We want you to be grounded in the gospel, who Jesus is and what he's done. And because of that, we want to gather to grow in the gospel together. As we've seen, it's the first and primary application of the gospel. It puts skin on the gospel. It displays what we have in the gospel. It's part of how we share in the victory of the gospel. And it's how we achieve God's goal for us in the gospel that we together would be mature in Christ. We have a long way to go, don't we? A long way to go. 
but the Lord is with us. We have his spirit. Let's gather to grow. You wonder, how do we do this? Ultimately, you know, it's not a program, right? It's an echo of the gospel in us. Be prayerful. Be hospitable. Be intentional. You know, sometimes when we come to church, we ask the question, I wonder what I'm going to get out of it. And I do hope you get something out of it. But if your first question is, what do I get out of it? That shows immaturity. Maturity is when you're at church is, how can I build somebody up? How can I listen to somebody or, or uh, pray for someone or speak the truth in love with someone? How can we grow? So be intentional and then to live it out, join a growth group. That's one way to do it. Sign up for our seminar on interpreting the Bible together. That's one way to do it. But there's a thousand ways to do it and more than a program, I want you to want to do it. I want it to just to be the echo of the gospel in us from official meetings to informal hangouts that we would gather to grow. Amen? Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for how you save us. And we thank you that in your victory, you give us church. You give us brothers and sisters. You give us gifts with which we can serve. You give us teachers so that we can know you in your word. We thank you, Lord. Inspire us. First of all, if anyone's not a believer here today, Lord, I just pray that they would trust you. They would hear your call, Lord Jesus, to believe on you, to come to you, and they would trust you today. And Lord, if they're thinking about church, that they would be inspired to know you more and serve you with a local church, and that we could all be built up to what you have for us, conformity, maturity, in Christ. Do this in us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.